0: Washington DC at the second Information Technology Industry Councils uh, the Intersect Tech and Policy Summit and I'm with the President and CEO Jason Oxman. Jason, thank you so much for uh, having me and Forbes. Listen, this is my first time here, second time you guys are doing this, um, and and the themes uh, AI, cybersecurity, critical infrastructure. I was just talking to uh, Director Croker about that. Uh, you know, great conversation. Uh, But now I have you, the man behind the scenes that is organizing this entire summit. Second time again, you're doing it. Why is this important? Because I hope it gets to a third and fourth and fifth because there's so much information here. But why is this summit important?
1: It will get to a third, fourth, and fifth. Guaranteed. And uh, appreciate your being here. Appreciate the opportunity to get together and talk about these important issues. We call it the intersect because we're operating at the intersection of technology and policy. So bringing together industry leaders from across the technology industry with the policymakers who are making the decisions that will impact the ability of these companies, these innovators to deploy the next generation of products and services to their customers. So having this dialogue here in D.C. as regulators and as Congress are making important decisions on all of those topic areas that you mentioned, ranging from AI and cybersecurity to broadband and privacy and beyond, having the conversation here in D.C. really helps focus a lens on how impactful the decisions Congress and regulators make will be on the ability of innovators to do what they do best, which is innovate.
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, so much information there. I mean, listen, chief AI officer now, that's the new uh, role that will be invading the C-suite in the coming years. And I heard, uh, you know, one official was saying how over the next 10 years, 10 bills per year will be aimed just at AI alone. So, uh, so much to talk about here. But listen, you've been on and off stage, and I know you've been here the second time again, you guys doing this What's the biggest thing that you've learned so far that maybe you didn't know coming in? And I know you're, you're an intelligent man, so I know you know a lot coming in, but what's the biggest thing you've
1: learned? Well, I always learn a lot at these events, yeah. and we're thrilled to have so many hundreds of people in the audience who are also learning a lot. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest takeaway for me this time around is really how much policymakers are looking for help from industry to educate them about the decisions they're going to make and the impact they're going to have. AI is a great example. It's so new, and there are so many different use cases, and it's impossible to develop a single regulatory approach to AI, because the use of AI to recommend what song I should listen to next or what movie I should watch next is very different than the use of AI by my doctor Mm -hmm. to recommend a course of treatment. So we need different regulatory approaches depending on the uses. So what we've heard a lot from decision-makers over the course of the day here at ITI's The Intersect is, help educate us, what are the different use cases that AI is gonna be put to? What should we be thinking about when we make a regulatory approach as uh, targeted as possible to the different risks involved in the different deployments of AI? Uh, that's the big takeaway for me is that that call for industry to really educate policymakers.
0: Yeah, it is a private partner, a private public relationship, right? You know, how we go about AI, developing it. Um, and and I, you know, one of the Salesforce officials was on stage and, you know, I love what she said. she said. We don't even know what it's capable of yet. And that the film that they made uh, and and describing how it's going to change, but we don't know what industry is. We got to be ready for it. Um, listen, you've been in this role since 2019, right? You were CEO in, in a previous stop, but what's it been like as CEO here running ITI?
1: Well, I, I feel like I've inherited a legacy yeah. uh, from my predecessors. ITI is 108 years old. Wow. We were founded in 1916 uh, as the trade association representing the business technology of the day, which, mm. in 1916, was typewriters and, uh, dictaphone machines and... Typewriter? Uh, what's that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the theory of what we do is the same, which yeah. is, uh, we try to set a course, uh, in public policy environments, uh, to promote innovation. So I feel, uh, entrusted, I think is the word I would use, mm-hmm. uh, with the legacy of what, uh, my predecessors have built and the team has built over the years, uh, at ITI. I think what's been different even within the last five years since I started in this role is AI. It's all anybody wants to talk to. And you mentioned it. It's what has brought everybody together. It's the one common phrase that everybody, regardless of their role, regardless of the company, regardless of where they are in government, it wants to talk about uh, because it is transformative. I don't think we've had this kind of transformative discussion about technology really since the dawn of the internet uh, and maybe even the the advent of the internet browser uh, in the the World Wide Web in the 1990s. It really is that transformative. And I think the AI conversation that we're having today is just in its early phase. I think we have a lot more to learn. Uh, AI is a technology that a lot of people understand, but a lot of people don't know exactly what it can do and where it's taking us. And that's what's most exciting to me uh, going forward.
0: There is some fear around AI. Um, I always say that AI has always been here, right? We've been using it. I, I'm a big video game player in, in Xbox, and I feel like there always have been components of AI. It's just different this time because of generative AI. Um, should people be fearful of it, or should they learn to embrace it? Because again, new roles are going to be opening up, new jobs, new skill sets, and all of that.
1: Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. Uh, Congressman Jay Obernolte, who's really uh, one of the most expert uh, members of Congress on AI actually has a graduate degree in it. Uh, in his remarks today, he mentioned that AI has been around for decades, and that's mm-hmm. that's what you're alluding to here as well. Uh, and some of the use cases historically have been kind of fun. Remember uh, Big Blue, uh, yep. the chess AI uh, machine that built uh, that uh, was built by IBM and defeated chess grandmasters. Mm-hmm. Um, The kind of fear that people have today is more science fiction than science. It's based on some AI depictions in movies and uh, and, and popular uh, media. I do think that we have to be careful not to base our decisions about public policy on fear. We have to base them on practicality. And and yes, a very different use case for AI uh, used in a military application Um, should call for a very different use case for the policy uh, that governs the use of AI in military applications versus the kind of things that are uh, more uh, everyday and don't carry a lot of risk. We call it a risk-based approach to AI. Uh, It's one that recognizes that AI is, as you mentioned, a software tool Mm -hmm. that's been around for a very long time. And software can be used for good and it can be used for evil. And, And as long as we focus the regulatory approach to addressing only those high-risk use cases that do cause some risk uh, to uh, the betterment of society, um, then I think we will have uh, done this in the right way.
0: Yeah, you said it could be used for evil. We're in election year, 2024. Do you expect a lot of evilness being put out there through the AI islands?
1: My hope is uh, that we'll focus on uses of AI for for good, um, to help uh, our elections are very secure, help continue to make them secure, Uh, Some of the things we see in the headlines are the use uh, of AI to, for example, spoof uh, politicians. Uh, uh, But we've seen regulators leap into action very quickly. We heard today at the Intersect from FCC Commissioner Ana Gomez, who talked about how the FCC has opened an enforcement matter. Uh, about robocalls mm-hmm. uh, that were made using AI that was uh, pretending to be the president of the United States. Oh, wow, That's illegal to do. Um, and uh, the FCC is taking action to make clear that that's illegal and to track down the company that's responsible for that. But I do think it's really important not to blame the tool mm-hmm. um, when it's inappropriately used, but to pursue the people who use it inappropriately. Uh, you know, you and I could plot a bank robbery over our mobile phones, and we wouldn't hold the mobile phone operator responsible for providing the technology that allowed us to communicate and plot that crime. And we wanna make sure that AI, because it can be used for good, isn't blamed when it's used inappropriately, but rather we target the behavior that we wanna target.
0: A lot to talk about here, but I wanna dive back into your career, right? Uh, Can't go back too far just take me to the point when you're broadcast journalist.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's true. Let
0: me, let me, let me, what, why did you get out? Why didn't you want to join us?
1: Well, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was raised, uh, uh, being constantly told that I had a great face for radio. Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> it was, uh, it was an obvious destination for me. Um, I did have an opportunity earlier in my career to, uh, work for, uh, for a public radio outlet, uh, as a reporter and for, uh, for a CNN radio affiliate as a, as a news anchor. I loved every minute of it, enjoyed yeah. it very much, uh, but then decided to go to, to law school and pursue a career in communications law, which allowed me to combine my interest in, in media uh, with an interest in, uh, in the law. Yeah. And I ended up at the Federal Communications Commission yeah. here in DC. That's what brought me here 27 years ago. So And
0: you never uh, looked back?
1: Never looked back. Right. It's, uh, it's been great ever since now uh, tech policy uh, is, uh, very different than it was 27 years ago when yeah. I started here in DC. Uh, but a lot of the same people, a lot of the same issues. And, uh, it's a, it's a great feel, and I, I love every minute of it.
0: Yeah. We have Forbes. We have this great community called Forbes BOK, okay. And, uh, they love, you know, leadership, pipelining things. And I asked during that transition, when you were going from broadcast and yeah. current role now, what's the biggest piece of advice that you picked up along the way that's continued to fuel you today?
1: That's a great question. So the biggest piece of advice I got was to pursue a passion and uh, an area of interest. So when I went to law school, you know, I wasn't interested in working for a law firm or being kind of a run-of-the-mill lawyer. I was interested in doing the law related to the area that I loved, yeah. which, was, uh, which was media and, and communications. So I actually went and got a dual degree uh, from a journalism school and, a, and, uh, and law school at the same time yeah. uh, because of that passion. So that's the best advice I ever got is, you know, when you're thinking about your career path, find something that you're really passionate about and that will carry you through. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Listen, I, I have conversations with with uh, tech guys all the time and you know, one, one, I have one with a few years ago, we were talking about if the country has uh, finished rewiring itself, because you know, you're know, going through this new internet and all this new tech, you need to speed. Have we gotten to a point where, where it's rewiring is done or do we have a lot more to go? Because believe it or not, as you probably know, some places they still need to order pay-per-view yeah, to get you know some some events because the the, the the signals are just not there.
1: Yeah, we're we're not done, and and uh, the the thing that keeps me uh, going on this issue is the areas in which we're not done are the areas that can least afford not to have affordable broadband access. Areas like it, rural areas, minority communities, low income areas of the country, the digital divide. Uh, it's it's people who would benefit the most from access to broadband services because of what it means for access to education, access to training, uh, worker uh, opportunities, uh, access to medical services in rural areas where you don't have anybody, um, access to job opportunities, remote job opportunities uh, from from companies that don't have a presence in a a particular area. And uh, we need to do a better job. There are still tens of millions of Americans uh, who live in those areas, uh, in those communities, that don't have access to affordable broadband, we're much better off than we were just a few years ago. But we're definitely not done yet. Yeah, I
0: believe it. the U.S. Census said about 90 percent, almost uh, of U.S. homes are broadband, but they're still ten percent. I figure when we get to hundred, then we can, you know, really start to to fast forward things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You live in maybe in a rural area in Virginia, right? Um, in that particular state, there are what they call data centers and you know data alley, right? big giant buildings, you know, heard Barry Stoutler talk about that. Um, What is the future of data centers and where are these big giant buildings that controls internet traffic and speed and connectivity, where are they going to be popping up next? I mean, but Jane's only the start, I believe, and there's obviously other places, but you're going to need more of them, especially if we're talking about the AI and cars that can drive themselves. They need to be connected.
1: You're right about Virginia. It's actually a, a legacy of the dawn of the internet where yeah. the East Coast internet traffic all Half ended yeah. ended up in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, Prince William County, uh, Virginia, uh, something in the neighborhood of two thirds of the internet traffic in the country passes through uh, those areas of Virginia. So uh, data centers are enormously important. They're a huge generator of revenue uh, for the area as well. Great job creator. Uh, But those data centers are enormously important because as you referenced, as we move into AI, the compute power that's required for AI is massive. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, there are a number of technology companies, a lot of them that are in the data center business, uh, companies that run data centers. And then there are a lot of companies that partner with those data center operators uh, to put their servers in there and provide the compute power that's necessary and is accessible by all who want to participate in the AI technology revolution. Yeah. So data centers in Virginia, it's a big deal, but they are spreading uh, around the country. Uh, and around the world and that's great for innovation because you do need to be able to access that compute power to participate
0: do you see them popping up maybe in inner cities because you know there is a commercial real estate problem that we might face then you might have a whole bunch of empty buildings is it fair that maybe companies go in and, and put those data centers inside of communities i know they're on the outskirts now and there are communities that are uh, you know not happy about it because of the noise that they say that they make because again you got internet traffic coming in and ain't gonna be all quiet there's a lot of humming but can you envision maybe some of these buildings that we may see downtowns and cities turning into data centers to maybe help the traffic?
1: Yeah, you may have hit on the next great uh, technology business plan right there. And I don't wanna- Make sure that I,
0: give give, give me the credit for that. I don't wanna take that away (laughs) from you.
1: I don't wanna take that away from you. Uh, Data centers are massive uh, in their size and scope. Um, so the reason they're generally in uh, in more rural areas is because of the footprint they occupy uh, and they also require access to utilities. Um, so uh, it's it's sometimes difficult to place those in uh, in urban areas. But uh, you may have hit on something that would be the inner city recovery the that innovation. the nation needs. Yeah, yeah. Innovation,
0: right? Uh, listen, out of those companies you mentioned, you know, listen, Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM. Those are just four that are battling for the footprints and the data centers. Out of those four I mentioned, which one would you say has a significant lead or maybe in first place right now? Is it Microsoft because of OpenAI?
1: Yeah, you hear a lot about Microsoft. You hear a lot about Google, a lot about IBM, um, a lot about Meta. Um, They all have large language models uh, that they're deploying. Uh, But Amazon is doing it uh, for their Mm -hmm. ecosystem. Uh, Apple is talking about it. They just deployed a new uh, technology that we're all gonna be wearing on our faces uh, in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Um, So those companies are all, uh, everyone you mentioned, uh, part of the revolution uh, of AI. And they're all addressing it in, in different ways and coming at it from different angles. Uh, you mentioned Microsoft's partnership with uh, OpenAI. I think OpenAI is responsible for bringing AI to a lot more people's attention than had before it launched. And it's hard to believe it was just a year ago mm. that OpenAI really launched uh, commercially for the first time. Um, so Microsoft is very focused on consumer applications and bringing it into their suite of products. Uh, Google's very focused on improving search uh, as, they, uh, as they do and making it uh, even more functional and uh, more effective uh, for those of us that rely on Google to find things that we need on the internet. Uh, IBM is uh, deploying a lot of uh, 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 corporate tools uh, for companies to take advantage of AI. Uh, and then you jump over to companies like Siemens, which is uh, using AI to create more efficient assembly lines and improve the manufacturing process and allow companies to use um, digital twins and uh, uh, map out uh, improvements to the manufacturing line uh, virtually mm. uh, using AI rather than having to build it and find out it doesn't work. Um, so a lot of different use cases yeah. and a lot of different companies benefiting.
0: Yeah, well, you touched on one of the companies, again, uh, AI. When you hear the name Sam Holtman, what comes to mind?
1: In- innovation. Uh, I think he's been responsible for, again, bringing this to the attention of the masses. Uh, in a way that a lot of other companies uh, did not succeed in doing. Um, And, you know, uh, sometimes when you bring something to attention for the first time, it puts a target on you. uh, And he's had to deal with a lot of that. Uh, But I do think he's done a terrific job of playing an education role. I mean, he really has spent a lot of time, for a guy who's running a company, uh, spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, educating policymakers, helping them understand about the benefits, providing a demonstration of the technology so they can really see how it works and how it benefits people and doesn't harm people despite some of the stories that are out there. Uh, so I think he's done a great job.
0: Yeah, well, a few more questions, so I'll let you get out of here, because you're a CEO. And I know you're very busy. <laughs> um, you know, the, the first being, what's Jason Ackman looking at Ackman looking at in, in 2024, we're in February now, the rest of 2024 when it comes to, to tech? Yeah. Outside of, of the... Uh...
1: Yeah, so uh, the technology industry is uh, innovating on a number of fronts. And uh, one of the biggest challenges that we face around the world uh, in the U.S., in Europe, uh, and in other jurisdictions is a very heavy regulatory environment. There's a lot of attention being paid to regulation across uh, uh, privacy, uh, platform regulation, uh, AI regulation, a lot of broadband regulation, uh, a lot of services regulation. Um, a lot of consumer regulations. So uh, telling the tech story uh, internationally is really our focus for 2024 and making sure that regulators understand that there is a real connection between the decisions that they make uh, and the ability of companies to provide innovative uh, products and services. So making sure that uh, regulators understand the impact of the decisions they make is a big 2024 focus. The second thing I'd mention Uh, is workforce. Uh, STEM education is enormously important. There are hundreds of thousands of open jobs uh, in technology, both in the tech industry itself and then in adjacent industries that employ people with tech skills. We need to do a better job of not only educating uh, Americans um, to fill those roles, but also welcoming the best and the brightest from around the world who want to come here and learn in our schools. We should be attaching a green card to a graduate degree, mm-hmm. uh, a PhD, uh, and when they get their diploma. Yeah. Uh, and we need to do a better job of uh, making uh, this economy continue to hum uh, by educating uh, people with for the workforce jobs of tomorrow.
0: Yeah, well, and one of the things that's gonna make this all work, semiconductors, right? I know you're very passionate about this in 2022. You wrote uh, that these semiconductors are the the backbone of the digital world, and you know obviously the U.S. has you know really led that until recently they yeah. fell behind. Now we do not lead uh, the production of semiconductors. Now I think that plummeted. You wrote uh, 70% after 1990, uh, and today it only produces 10% of the global supply. That's bad, uh, very bad. Uh, and then we have the Chips and Science Act of of 2022. It was supposed to provide over 52 billion dollars. Uh, to bring this back, right? Manufacturing of chips. Yet Intel's delaying on the, the $20 billion semiconductor they're supposed to have for Ohio. It sounds like it's in flux. What's going on with that Chips Act? And you know, how do we get to lead the world again in, in semiconductors? Because these things, running cars, running social media, they run everything.
1: And we saw during the pandemic how a shortage of semiconductors can mean that when we want to go buy a car, there isn't one to buy.
0: And Xbox prices went all the way up.
1: That's right. It's it's an incredibly important industry. As you noted, there are semiconductors in everything Everything. that we use. Uh, And the country that invented the semiconductor, having fallen so far in semiconductor manufacturing, is something that needs to be addressed. And Congress did that with the Chips and Science Act, more than $50 billion in investments in infrastructure and semiconductor manufacturing here in the U.S. It's important for economic security. It's also important for national security. We want to make sure that the critical next generation of semiconductors are made here uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Now, what's great is there is worldwide interest in coming and investing here in semiconductor manufacturing. Intel is building, but so is Samsung, so is TSMC, countries, companies from around the world are coming and taking advantage of the the Chips and Science Act. Now, most of the funding hasn't gone out the door yet. The implementation work uh, that the administration is doing is still underway. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons you've seen some of these projects start up, but not come to completion yet, because the implementation of the Chips Act still needs to happen. 2024 will be a big year for that implementation and we fully expect that manufacturing pace to just increase uh, which is the goal of everybody as you noted it's really important that semiconductor manufacturing take place here in the u.s and the chips and science act is going to help make that a reality yeah. right
0: now china's i uh, believe leading with taiwan is making t- china's I mean you have to get that stat back right you have to how how far do you envision the u.s until we take that lead back of, of- Producing
1: Yeah, China has done some industrial policy in the semiconductor industry that has made them the worldwide leader in manufacturing. Yeah. And that's not where we want to be, both, again, for economic reasons and for national security reasons. Uh, China does a better job in providing investment tax uh, incentives for investment. Uh, they have invested uh, directly uh, in manufacturing facilities in China. Uh, and we have some catch-up work to do. Uh, But we're going to do it. And uh, the Chips and Science Act is an important start. And the announcements you've seen from Intel and TSMC, Texas Instruments, Samsung, and others about manufacturing in the US, um, that's a testament to the fact that the program is going to work. Uh, And uh, I have every confidence uh, that the semiconductor manufacturing industry is going to return in force to the US.
0: That's that's phenomenal. i get you out of here on Good to Great. Jim Collins with his great book, uh, Good to Great. Um, the difference between a good tech company and a great uh,
1: A great tech company is one that innovates and deploys that innovation for good. Uh, and That's what I think the hallmark of the ITI membership is. All the companies that we represent are companies that know that they have a powerful responsibility uh, with the obligation to deploy new technology and to deploy it for good. And I think they fulfill that and make some great companies. Jason Knoxman, president and CEO of
0: ITI. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to coming back year after year after year to learn because uh, we face a a challenge ahead. You know, critical infrastructure, semi-chip conductor, data centers, right, and all of that. And we got to get you back on the broadcasting side. So we want to make that happen.
1: We appreciate that. that And uh, we're very grateful for your being here. Appreciate the opportunity for the conversation. And uh, thank you. Thank you.